Ezekiel's wife dies, God demonstrates more wrath, and we see Satan. Oh, and we find out why sin makes you a prostitute. Welcome to Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. My name is Keith, and this is Brandon, and we are pastors here in Santa Cruz, California at Gospel Community Church. Welcome. We hope you are glorified by the gospel and just learning about the uh, Old Testament. Uh, like, subscribe, comment. Yep. Gets the gospel out there. Do those things. Yep. We are in our second week of the book of Ezekiel, and it is uh, very entertaining, very sad, but very hopeful at the same time. It's good. It's uh, So far, it's been very interesting. Mm-hmm. We've seen the world's first UFO. This is when the Martians first landed. Yep. Um, so we saw that truly, last truly. week. If you missed that, make sure you go back and learn about the first UFO with yep. its spinning uh, wheels mm-hmm. and angelic creatures yeah. and all the rest. Flawless uh, four-wheel drive ability. Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. Pretty amazing. Unfortunately for Israel, God's taking that four-wheel drive vehicle away from the temple. Yeah, well, he's going to... He's going to run over them oh, and then back right. it up and yeah. then run over them again, and then he's going to go far away. Yeah, that makes sense. Three times, I think. Yeah, yeah, something like that. So we've seen in Ezekiel the importance of God's presence. So that ch- first chapter with the the UFO, that's not a UFO. It's the the chariot of God, the four-wheel drive the vehicle. of the glory of, of God. Or yeah, the, the throne, the, the mobile throne of God. Mm-hmm. Um, that's his presence, and we saw it leaving the city. Mm-hmm. So it appears, to, it appears to Ezekiel in... Babylon in captivity, right? But we later see that it's actually departing from Israel. Mm-hmm. It's going out of the temple, and there's a reason for that because we saw these abominations mm-hmm. taking place in the temple, idol worship happening at a large scale, with even some of Israel's leaders being part of that. Mm-hmm. So that's some of what we saw last week. We saw Ezekiel was given a calling. He was called by God to preach to the people, to bring this message, to be a watcher on the walls, right. warning about the coming judgment. Mm-hmm. And it was his job to warn. And he does that through a bunch of different signs. Right. So we saw a few uh, last week. We'll see a few today. Mm-hmm. And they, they are very interesting. And, and I loved how last week ended because we get hope, right? God's yeah. going to take his people's heart from a heart of stone and transform it into a heart of flesh. And that is mm-hmm. super hopeful. That's right. Yeah, heart surgery. If you have a heart of a stone, um, you will not do well against COVID. It doesn't that's, pump that's blood the for threat, again, right? I think a heart of stone is going to make it really hard to do a lot of other things. Uh, that is a good point. Yeah. yeah, you'll be limited. Yeah, in a lot of ways. So, a heart of stone, you are dead. Mm-hmm. Heart of flesh, you are alive. So this is heart surgery, heart transplant. All right. Something that you can't do for yourselves because your heart is stone. You're dead. Hmm. So, and we're, we're going to see a lot more. Uh, next week as well, about how God is the one who does the work of salvation, 100%. Right. It's, it's not up to us. So anyway, so we saw Ezekiel. He's a 30-year-old priest, and when he's supposed to be going into the ministry, he's alone, yet God appears and shows him that his plan is going to be to, to have his presence with his people, mm-hmm. even in captivity, and eventually bring them out of captivity. Yeah, so no matter where you are in life, whether you're sad, depressed, Go down by the river and pray to God. That's right. Yeah, it's more like a song about going down the river to pray. Yep. So we saw the structure, chapters one to three, Ezekiel's mission, mm-hmm. four to twenty-four, God's judgment on Israel. Mm-hmm. So we'll kind of wrap up that section, and then God's judgment on the nations, chapters twenty-five to thirty-three. Right. So we're going to be in those sections today. Awesome. And then next week we'll look at God's rescue and renewal in thirty-four to forty-eight. 
Very good. So let's just jump back in. So God gives another sign to, to, to Ezekiel. I love these sign acts. They're great. They're, they are great, man. Yep. They're super entertaining. So he gives him a, 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 this sign act. In chapter 12, verse 3, he says, prepare for yourself an exile's baggage and go into exile a day in their sight. So pack your bags, um, get ready to go. Mm-hmm. And what you're going to do, Ezekiel, is you're going to actually dig into the wall. So I want you to dig through your own wall <laughs> and bring your bags out of, of the wall. So verses 5 and 6. And you know, do it in their sight, right? And walk out there with, with your bag on your shoulder. <laughs> and this is all a point. The, the, the point of this is in verse 11. You should tell them. So when they ask, you know, what are you doing, Ezekiel? Why does this matter? You say, I'm a sign for you. As I have done, so shall it be done to them. They shall go into exile, into captivity. So this is what's going to happen to them. They're going to be taken out in shame and in disgrace. I want there to be like, I want there to be a movie on Ezekiel. This would be great. Could you imagine just like a group of old-timey guys just sitting around watching Ezekiel in all these different situations, you know? It'd be great. Like, did he have like, how many people were watching him when he was doing this stuff, you know? Yeah, like, was it a crowd or was it just like a few neighbors that, I mean, because he's like laying for hundreds of days. Like, this is, I mean, real commitment. So it's like, there's old Ezekiel, like, being a weirdo. Yeah, you know, exactly. Playing with his toys on the ground. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. be fascinating. Yeah, because, I mean, you kind of get the impression with these prophets that, I mean, obviously no one listened to them for the most part. Right. So they were just kind of weirdos, outcasts. Right. This, this voice in the wilderness, sort of, so to speak. It could be a great dark comedy. Yes. <laughs> Like uh, what, what's the what's the Groundhog's Day guy? Bill Bill, Bill, Murray. Bill Murray. Yeah, he yeah. could be Ezekiel. Be I feel like he'd really be a good fit, good good dark comedy. <laughs> so chapter thirteen. We're just gonna move on from that. Act yeah. like that. We didn't say all that. Yeah. Chapter thirteen. We see that God's presence is tied to His word. Mm-hmm. So there's a really high value on God's word. So Ezekiel's gonna come after the prophets of Israel. Yeah. And this is, again has been a theme through Isaiah and Jeremiah. Yeah, I mean, um, we even saw earlier the Ezekiel eight God's word, right? So, that's right. Yeah, yeah they're, they're neglecting that. So, so what you know, this I think is actually applicable for us today. What do you do? We were just talking about this before we started this episode. What do you do when someone says God spoke to me? God told me mm. to do X, Y, or Z. Like, how do you how do you deal with that? And it's often very difficult. Yeah, especially when it, those things conflict with God's word. Yeah. Yeah. How do you parse what's your own thoughts and desires and motives or what's God's will or language to you? Yeah. yeah. Uh. And the seriousness of that, of saying that God has spoken to you. Right. And I think, see, here's, I think that a lot of people, when they say God spoke to me, what they actually mean is something like God impressed this upon me. Right. Most God, people, yeah, for sure. God, I have this sense that God wants me to do X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. So if, if that's, if you're like a friend of mine and you've said that to me, I, I do, and I probably said those words too. I feel like God really told me to, or spoke, you know. But I, I think we have to be very careful about that. What is God speaking, and what is God, you know, moving our hearts, or we think mm-hmm. God's moving our hearts. When God speaks, it's it's not it's it's unequivocal, right? It's it's clear. It it has a meaning to it, and it must be obeyed. When there's an impression that we have, we have to discern that. We have to think through that. We have to. So I personally never had an audible voice speak to me. I know some people have. So maybe that's a, a little bit different, but we have to be so, so careful when we say God has spoken. Right. Thus saith the Lord, essentially. This is what he says. He says in verse 2, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. Right? Is this, is this actually God's word or is it yours? Verse 6, 
They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them. Right. And yet they expect him to fulfill their word. So you're not being careful with God's word. You're claiming to speak for God, and then you're upset that God doesn't do what ha- what's come out of your own mind. Right. It's yeah. never his promise to begin with. Yeah, and that's not to say that God is not guiding his people actively today or, or even back then. But, I mean, there's a clear, like, um, I don't know, it it's it's like negligence. You're being negligent negligent with God's word. You're like you're not valuing it. You're not holding fast to it and like protecting it, right? So, yeah. I think of the old hymn, like what more can he say than to you he has said. Ah, yes. Great that, hymn. That there, the word of God is sufficient for our needs. We don't need God to give us an answer to every specific issue because we can gain wisdom and insight from his word. Yeah, it's a firm foundation, right? Yeah. So, and, and I do think that there's there's such a long history of people using that mm-hmm. uh, that idea of God speaking to them in order to manipulate others. Yeah. Because if, you're, if your movement or your group has accepted that God can speak to certain people mm-hmm. and that can't be questioned, then you're going to allow them to do things that are unhealthy, we should right. say, or, or outright sinful. My, my favorite... Um, my favorite use of this, or most annoying, it's either one of those favorite or most annoying, is uh, when you have a relationship of a young couple and one of them says, God told me to break up with this person. Yeah. 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 Um, God, God, whose you know, word upholds the universe, <laughs> like t- took his attention to, you know, away from saving souls and all those things to tell you that you're such a bad boyfriend. It's that possible. I need to break up with it's you. possible. It's, it is possible, right? And of course, he, he is. He can do all things at the same time. Are you fair. saying God doesn't care about the little things in our life? It's just, it is, I mean, what that conveys to this poor person that you're dating, right? Of like, <laughs> the, yeah, no, like, like the divine has given me a word that you're, you know, that bad. I guess you could go the opposite direction and say, God told me to date you. That's a really strong well, move I, I know, I know some of those stories as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. The, be careful when you say, let's say the Lord. So. We see, we see at the end of the chapter here, uh, verse 22, because you have disheartened the righteous falsely, although I have not grieved him, you have encouraged the wicked that he should not turn from his evil way to save his life. Therefore, you shall no more see false divisions nor practice divination. I will deliver my people out of your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. Hmm. This is interesting to me because it just it reminds me of what happens so much in our culture disheartening the righteous falsely. So people who are trying to do the right thing, who by certain leaders are discouraged from doing that. Hmm. I think we, I think we see, see that a lot. We see, you know, we're a very divided age and certain people are saying, oh, if you're, you know, trying to, trying to tell people like the right thing to do, then you're just a bad person. Hmm. And then the opposite is true as well. It's if you, you have encouraged the wicked and, and given the impression that you shouldn't turn from your evil way. Right. And again, I think often there's there's a certain there's certain leaders in our ch- in the church world that often spend more time condemning people who are trying imperfectly mm-hmm. to live righteous, and never will speak out against uh, progressive Christianity or what the world is doing and the, the deception that's happening. Right, and it, that that frustrates me, mm-hmm. you know. And and I hope that I'm seeing that rightly that I'm not falling into the same trap. But we got to be really careful as to how we how we lead people, and often we're we're careless with that. So. Mm. Anyway, I thought that was an interesting verse at the end of that. that sums up some of the issues with the leadership. Yeah. And we'll see more of that in chapter 34 as well. Chapter 14, we see this idea of idols of the heart. Hmm. That's never been, been a phrase in Scripture up to this point. So chapter 14, verse 3, 
It says, son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts. Mm. So the idolatry is not necessarily just something that is objective and outside of you. It's something that's about what you desire, what you value in your heart. Is that, is that the, this is the first time that that language comes up? Yes, yeah. That's crazy. I'm 99.9% sure. The ideas seem to be there, you know, that you know the heart is an issue and you should stuff with Pharaoh, but that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So, so in terms of actually, because, yeah, it's always been about what you're doing outwardly, and this right. is super important for when you get to the Pharisees because the hundreds of years before Jesus' arrival, idolatry is gone. So when they return... Idolatry in terms of an outward expression is eradicated, Mm -hmm. but they've just taken those idols and put them in their hearts. Right. And that's more dangerous. So for us as as modern people, we have tons of idols. I mean, there's definitely been a rise in actual physical idols, but also (laughs) even if we don't have physical idols, we have tons of things that we place our value and our worth into, that we look for hope, that we look for to for joy, that we think if I just had X, Y, or Z, or if I just you know, had the love of this person, or if I was able to accomplish this thing, then I'd be happy. Yeah, I feel like a broken record sometimes, but I feel like that's often in our in our sermons is something along the heart of idols in that sense. You know, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So an idol, if you don't know, in terms of what we're talking about this figurative sense, idol is anything that takes the throne of God, anything that you lift up to a point of importance in your life, where it it takes you away from God. Yeah, and you can find those things, like I said, by looking at what you fear the most. Um, that will show your idol kind of in an, in an inverse way, what you love the most, what you, if you don't have it, it devastates you. Um, and what, if you, th- what you set your heart on in terms of, if I had this, I would be in heaven, right? Yeah. I mean, you can think of those religious terms mm-hmm. and that will show you what your idol is. Yep. It's important to ask those questions often. So they have heart idols and there's, there's a, it's very desperate for them. But verse 14 of chapter 14 he said, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in yeah. the city, they would deliver but their own lives <laughs> by their righteousness. So you have the most righteous men in history with them, and they would be, they would still not be able to save God's people. Yeah. So this is this is really, really bad. Chapter 15, we see a familiar image here, and I'm sure you picked this up when you were reading, I hope, but this image of the vineyard. Mm-hmm. So remember Isaiah chapter 5. We saw this picture of the vineyard, and now we have the vineyard. It's kind of the next step of this, which is this vine that is is born nothing. It's it's chopped down, and now he's saying, "Take the, what's chopped down and burn it, mm-hmm. <laughs> burn it completely." So it's a it's like a destruction over again right. of this worthlessness of Israel. So we see that picture of God has cut off His people. Chapter sixteen is it's a horrifying chapter, really. I mean, it's. You got to have a strong stomach to read this chapter of the Bible, and the the tough thing is that this this chapter, as Keith mentioned earlier, I mean this this chapter in some sense is speaking about you and me. Mm-hmm. I mean this this chapter is speaking about anyone who sins against God. So it's clearly its primary primary reference is to Israel itself, to Judah, I should say, mm-hmm. and to their sin. But it's a reminder to us of any kind of heart idolatry is the same thing. It's right. the same thing. So what am I talking about? Well, th- this chapter essentially presents God rescuing a young child, mm. a young girl. So we say God speaks to them, and, and he speaks to Israel and says, Your origin, verse 3, and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. So all the people that you hate the most, right. that's who you come from. So um, you, you have a, a bad origin. So this is pretty insulting to them. But it didn't matter to God mm-hmm. where they were from. He loved them anyway. It says, verse 4, As for your birth on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, 
nor were you washed with water, right. nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you. So no one loved you. No one cared about you. You were just left out in the open, exposed to die. And yet God says, when I saw you, I t- had compassion on you. And I, yeah. I washed you and I clothed you and I cared for you. Right. And then we see in verse 8 that he comes back and mm-hmm. he sees her when she's grown up. And he gives his love to her in terms of marriage. He wants mm-hmm. to marry her. Yeah, covenant. Oh. Now, this is weird to you. Like, wait, God, like this person like found a baby and then married it later. That's okay. I, I get that that's weird. <laughs> and this, how old is this person? All that sort of stuff. But that's not the point. The point is the loving care of God. Yeah, the deep relationship. Right? Yeah. yeah, the deep relationship, yeah. The, the compassion when they were helpless. <laughs> and he sees them and he enters into a covenant with them. Mm-hmm. We see that in verse 8, a covenant I entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. And I washed you, and I clothed you, and I adorned you, and I fed you. So he gives he gives jewelry and clothing and, and the best kind of food. All these things God gives freely and abundantly to his bride, to yeah. Israel. And verse 14 says, And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, mm. declares the Lord. So I gave to you incredible beauty and renown. Everyone looked at you and said, this is this is someone that's blessed by God. Right. And then we have verse 15. Yes. But, verse 15, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. So instead of trusting God who had given these things to you, who had made you beautiful, Mm -hmm. you trusted in the beauty itself. This is idolatry 101. God gives you what you need. He blesses you with whatever, wealth or family. And instead of trusting in the one who gives that to you, you trust in that thing itself. Mm -hmm. And you destroy that thing because you put too much weight on it, whether it's a person or an object, whatever. You put too much weight on it. Mm -hmm. You demand too much of it that it can never fulfill. And so you'd crush that person or that thing, and then you also destroy yourself. Right. And so he talks about this. You made shrines. You took the, the, the clothing that I gave to you, that God had bestowed upon you, and you made shrines to worship or, well, to, in this sense, to, to have an affair on, right? Right. To, to do horrible things. And the picture there is of their actual physical idol worship. Mm-hmm. Verse 17, you took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, you can see the emphasis here of a, of a you know wounded husband, which I had given you, and you made for yourselves images of men, and with them played the whore. So you, you know this this picture of idol worship is spiritual adultery. Yeah, it's a breaking of the deepest covenant relationship, and the only thing that that's worthy of being compared to that is unfaithfulness in marriage, mm-hmm. and taking the gifts right the the wedding ring that your spouse gave you and you selling that or giving that to someone in order so that they will have an affair with you. I mean, this this is brutal, brutal stuff. And verse 18, you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave to you. Uh, Everything that God gives, you're giving in order to try to get something from these idols, Mm -hmm. from these, these false lovers. And you're losing all the good gifts that God's given to you and you're gaining nothing in return. Hmm. This is what idol worship is. And so he, he goes on in all this detail, right? There's, I mean, there's more than we could really talk about right now, but in verse, verse 20, he says, you took, some of, you took your sons and your daughters whom you had born to me and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Hmm. 
Were your horns so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And, and, and he says, in all of this, you didn't remember the days of your youth. Hmm. You used to be helpless. You used to have nothing. I gave this all to you. Right. And you're going to use the things that I've given to you to betray me hmm. and to harm me. So this is, this is the story of Israel. Israel was nothing. God redeemed them from that, gave them everything. And they took that wealth and that power and they used it to walk away from God. Right. It's a really vivid picture of, of how bad Israel actually is and yeah. how bad sin is. Oh, yeah. Like, oftentimes we don't take even our smallest sin and understand the weightiness of it yeah. and how it just totally tramples on the glory of God. Yeah, absolutely. So he says, verse 23, just, I mean, this, it's such emotional language mm-hmm. that God is using here, right? He says, and after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby mm-hmm. and multiplying your whoring. So you're just unfaithful with everyone. You're everyone. Not only that, but he goes on to say, you didn't even get paid to do this. Right. Uh, it, it, if it could get worse, you don't even, he says, you know, verse 30, how sick is your heart because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute. Yet, verse 31, Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payments. Mm-hmm. Verse 33, men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave gifts to all your lovers. Mm-hmm. So you're actually paying. So you don't receive any objective thing from this crime that you're committing, from this horrible thing. Right. And that just adds to this. It's not like he would say it's good if you got paid. He's just saying there's it's, it's completely insane. Right. It's nonsensical. You get nothing from it. Mm-hmm. And we've all seen this. We've all seen people. I mean, I think addiction is the most vivid picture of this, right? Yeah. You you try to get something, and the drug is just demands more and more of you. Mm-hmm. You sacrifice more for it. You can't keep a job. You can't. You sell everything you have to get more, and then it destroys your health, and it never even satisfies you because right. it only satisfies you for a second, and then you need more and more of it. Yeah. And so this is what sin is. Sin is addictive, destructive. It's ugly. So this is what. This is what this chapter is all about. And I think just, you know, as again, as difficult as it is, meditating on this and thinking about this um, and examining our own hearts and what idols we have is so important. Mm-hmm. And this, this is, in a weird way, good devotional reading to think about how have I used what God has given me to betray God? Right. And how can I confess those things and restore that relationship, mm-hmm. which God's always seeking in terms of the marriage covenant, yeah. right? So there's a, there's a lot here, but he goes on to talk about their their family essentially. Um, talks about how you know your mother, verse forty five. Your mother was a Hittite. Your father an Amorite. Your elder sister is Samaria, and then your younger sister is Sodom. These are mm. your relatives. You think that you're something special, mm. but you're related to all these people. You're made of the same stuff, right? And so it's it's a good reminder that God is actually he actually says, you know what, you actually make. Samaria and Sodom look pretty good. <laughs> like you're the bad like of those siblings, you're the bad one. Mm. Don't forget Sodom, really bad place. Genesis 19, really really bad place. Yeah. And he's saying you're you outshine them in being evil. So, but he does, but he gives good news. So he you're you're in the same boat as them, but what God says is I'm going to restore even them. I'm going to I'm going to save Sodom, I'm going to save Samaria. Verse 53, I will restore their fortunes, both Sodom and Samaria. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to restore their fortunes, and I'm going to restore your fortune. 
He goes on in verse 59. He says, I will deal with you as you have done. You have despised the oath and breaking the covenant, yet I will remember my covenant Mm. with you in the days of your youth. I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. So you're going to be ashamed of what you've done in the past. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to welcome you back in. So even in the midst of one of the darkest chapters in the whole Bible, yeah, it's hard to c- compete with this. It's pretty dang bad. But God is saying, I still have a plan to rescue you from yeah. that. Amazing grace. <laughs> Amazing, yeah. Absolutely. So let's, let's go to, we got a lot to ca- cover today. Let's go to chapter 18. This is very important. So there was another proverb. We, we saw this earlier with the whole the meat in the cauldron mm-hmm. proverb. So there's another proverb here, which is in 18 verse 2. He says, the proverb that they're saying in the land is, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So in other words, y- if you eat sour grapes, you get that ugh, you know mm-hmm. kind of feeling. And he's saying that's so that the, the fathers do the bad thing and it's the children who feel the res- result. Mm-hmm. So kind of doesn't feel, feel basically they're saying, well, we're going to face judgment now because our fathers were so bad, because our ancestors were so bad. <clears throat> and so God wants to make this really clear. He says, you're not going to use this as a proverb anymore. This is done. And he says, instead, verse 4, <clears throat> he says, this, this is the soul who sins shall die. The soul who sins shall die. So everyone's going to die for their own sins. Mm-hmm. So don't think that the things coming upon you, the bad things coming upon you, are due to someone else. Right. Now, of course, there are natural impacts of our sins that affect generations, right? We know that for sure. That affect our own kids or affect someone else's kids. We Adam. To, yeah. yeah, we got to be mindful yeah. of that. But what he's saying here is, no, when you're punished by God, it's because you have sinned. Right. It's your fault. And so God is bringing those things to light. Yeah, what a, what a contrary uh, idea uh, compared to our culture right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is all about, you know, that we're all this sort of corporate entity. Yeah, right? and you're imputing sin of people that, you know, were, it's exactly this, this thought hundreds yeah. of years previously to us. Yeah, if you're the know. same skin color as someone who lived in the past that did crimes, that you know you could argue you benefit from then you're you're somehow guilty of those same crimes yeah it's crazy and of course it's very destructive Mm -hmm. and so yeah we so i think we um we see that different mindset and this is saying no you you are punished for your own sins Mm -hmm. and you can't atone for someone else's sins so 1820 the soul who sins shall die the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father nor the father for the iniquity of the son the righteous of the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Mm-hmm. So everyone has to pay for their own crimes. And so that's what we see throughout history is that God, um, even though you know life brings on a, a lot of different situations to people, ultimately speaking, when we stand before God, we are paying for our own sins. Mm-hmm. And that we need a payment for that as well. So that would be the smart thing is to get a payment for that before you go to heaven. And so the response is to repent. At the end of this chapter, he's saying, repent. He's saying, cast away, verse 31, cast away from you all the transgressions that you've committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Yeah. So just make yourselves a new heart. Make yourselves a new spirit. (laughs) We've seen that kind of command before, right? Just give yourself heart surgery. Just do this impossible thing. No. And that's pointing us to the fact that we need a solution from God. Right. 
So let's go to chapter 21. Just going to highlight some things in these in these chapters. We're going to spend time in a few um, chapters next week that I think are super key to the book of Ezekiel. But trying to give you a big idea here. Chapter 21, verse 26. Which, uh, so he's, he's, he's talked about the, how the prophets are evil, and then he starts to talk about the priests and the kings, how they also are evil. And we'll see this more later on, that God is challenging the leadership. Mm-hmm. And in verse 26 of 21, I just want to point this out because this is very important. Thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. So turban being the priestly headdress that we see you know, laid out in the description of the garments of the high priest. And the crown, of course, being a picture of the king, kingship. Things that sh- things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low, and bring low that which is exalted. Mm-hmm. A ruin, ruin, ruin! I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. So this is a really interesting passage, and it kind of uh, so th- they're speaking of somebody who. Um, there's a there's a turban and a crown that are rejected, right? Thrown on the ground, and there's someone who's going to be able to take both of those things. Mm-hmm. So what that's pointing to clearly is somebody who's going to be able to be both priest and king. Right. That's the idea. And so the wording here is interesting. So this whole idea of to, until he comes to whom judgment belongs, it's sort of linguistically similar to uh, Genesis 49, where it's speaking of the prophecy about Judah. And it mentions this sort of weird, it's kind of a weird uh, prophecy, I guess you could say. In, in 49.10, Genesis 49.10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So it's speaking of the fact that Judah is going to be the kingly line. Mm-hmm. So David comes through him, and of course, right. ultimately, Christ comes through him. And then it says, Until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Mm-hmm. So some, some translations will say, Until Shiloh comes instead of until tribute comes. It's a very strange phrase, but it seems to be related to this phrase in, in Ezekiel 21, 27. So mm-hmm. without getting into more detail than that, when it says, until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, it seems to be some sort of connection there. And of course, we know Genesis 49 is being about Jesus. Right. And, and this, this one seems to point in some sense to him as well. So we'll talk about that more a little bit later, I guess. So chapter 21, chapter 20, we see um, verse verse 30. 22. 22, sorry, verse 30. I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me. Mm-hmm. I needed someone to intercede. I need someone to stand before me. Right. Maybe a Job or a Daniel or someone like that, Noah. <laughs> but I found none. Hmm. There's no one that can stop. There's no one that's righteous enough to stop me from the destruction that has to come. Hmm. And so in chapter 23, there's another metaphor that's used here. And again, it's this sort of sexual imagery, mm-hmm. adultery imagery. Right. And you have these two sisters, right? Ahola and Aholiba. And they're both sexually immoral. It's sort of a continuation of that Ezekiel 16 metaphor. And so it goes into some graphic detail. It's not pleasant. But these two sisters are pictures of Israel and Judah. Right. And, and their unfaithfulness is a picture of Israel and Judah's unfaithfulness, obviously. So he's going to deliver them into the hands of those whom they went after. So you pursued Assyria, Israel, mm-hmm. you're going to be sent to Assyria. Uh, Judah, you pursued Babylon, you were sexually immoral with Babylon, you're going to go to Babylon. Right. That's the punishment he's bringing. So the same sort of visceral um, 
just ugly description here and description of the destruction that's going to come upon them because of that, because of that sin. So, and he says, verse 27, Thus I will put an end to your lewdness and your whoring, begun in the land of Egypt, so that you shall not lift up your eyes to them or remember Egypt anymore. Hmm. So they're constantly wanting to go back to Egypt, go back into a pagan land, go back into slavery, unfaithfulness, and God is saying, there will come a day where you'll forget Egypt forever. So there's a, chapter 24, there's a new sign act. Kind of, I think this is, this is the last one. This is sort of the, the pinnacle of just the awful things that Ezekiel experiences. Right. So, I mean, he's laid in the dust. He's eaten this horrible bread cooked over dung. He's, mm-hmm. he's gone through all of these, these different signs. But now God says to him in Ezekiel 24, starting verse 15, God speaks to him and says, Behold, I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. But you will not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. So he says, I'm going to take away the one you love the most. Mm. I'm going to kill your wife. Mm. Which is, you know, a huge, uh, hard, to, hard to understand, obviously. right? We know that God holds every life in his hands. Right. So if he were to kill one of us, that's right. he's righteous to do that. He, he's the Lord of life. Right. And for us to be home with him is even better than being here. So that does, I think, resolve a lot of tension as to why God would take someone away. Mm-hmm. But for Ezekiel, I mean, this is a brutal thing. Right. This is this is really brutal. And he says not to mourn, though. Mm. Don't mourn. Don't cry. Just just deal with it. Right. Just. And this was a big part of their culture was when someone would die, there'd be mourning, and they would ha- they'd hire mourners to come and to wail to make a whole procession. That process of emotional expression was really important thing for them. So here he's saying, "Don't do that." So why? Why would he? Why would he say that? Well, verse twenty-three speaks to that they're going to be conquered, right? Uh, I should go back up a little bit. Verse twenty-one that the sanctuary, he says, the pride of your power, the delight of your eyes. So same phrase he used for Ezekiel's wife. Right. This sanctuary is going to be destroyed, and your your sons and daughters will be taken away. Right. So. I'm going to take away this place of my presence, which you delighted in. And because you are captives to a foreign power, they will not let you mourn. Mm. They're not going to be okay with you mourning. So you have to just deal with it. Mm. There's never a weep, weeping or mourning process. So this, in other words, he's symbolizing what's going to happen in the most brutal way. He's symbolizing what's going to happen to uh, Judah as a whole. Mm. God's people will be taken away and will never be able to mourn their loss. And then we see, um, uh, we won't go into it, but chapters 25 to 33, we see God's judgment on the nations. Mm-hmm. This is somewhat familiar, right? It's similar to what we saw in Isaiah and, Je- and Jeremiah. Right. But it's a very, it's very you know, clearly contained section. Um, so he's t- it's showing again that God is in control of the entire world. He's directing world history. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's going to call people to account for the evils that they've done. So there's a lot of comfort to it in that. There's the part I wanted to just briefly focus on, just like we did in Isaiah, is this section that sort of traditionally people see this as referring to Satan. Hmm. And so it's easy to remember because it's Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel 28. So it's twice 14. So I don't know if that's that easy to remember, but helps (laughs) me. 14 and 28. And so Ezekiel 28, he's speaking to the 
king of Tyre, the prince of Tyre, and this, this pride that he has, this exalted way that he views himself. So he speaks to the prince of Tyre at the beginning of 28 and then the king of Tyre in the second half of 28. And he starts to speak to him in the same way that Isaiah 14 was speaking to that ruler right. in terms of there's something greater behind him. Hmm. And this is, I think, a, just a, a true, <laughs> just a reality that there are satanic powers, demonic powers behind many of the world leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, there's probably satanic powers behind, you know, even the lowest people in society sometimes. So it's not just those people, but Satan loves power. He loves to wield things like that against God's people. Yeah. But it's listen to the way it speaks of him. It speaks of him as verse uh, chapter 28, verse 12. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. He goes on to speak of all these jewels that were on him. Verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub. Hmm. I placed you, this is speaking to a, a man, and you go, wait, this, You're right. why would he call him a cherub, right? So cherub being the cherubim, the, yeah. the angels that are on the throne of God. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. And so he talks about this, how he destroyed this cherub. Verse 17, your heart was proud because of your beauty. So I cast you to the ground. So all of this seems to be, it could be really extreme exalted language for a human, but it seems to be pointing to something behind this earthly power, someone he's speaking to because he knows who is influencing him. Right. And so this is where we get some of the ideas about Satan and his his origin as a cherub and as, you know, exalting himself to the throne of God, yeah. just like we saw in Isaiah 14. Hmm. So we'll stop there. There's uh, we'll, we'll start up in chapter 34 next week. Hmm. And there's a lot we didn't cover, but I think we covered what is most critical for us to cover. Yeah. Well, how does the gospel of the New Testament connect with us? So the, the, just the idea of spiritual adultery right. has its... You know, inverse image in Jesus and his faithfulness to his bride. Right. So just as we have been unfaithful to him, God still comes and seeks out a bride. Really, the mm. entire story of the gospel is can be displayed through the marriage covenant. Yeah. Right? That God loved us, he sought us, even when we were sinful, he cleanses us and brings us into relationship with him. Yeah. And we see that in Ephesians chapter five, mm-hmm. where he's speaking to wives and then to husbands. It's a very practical section. And then he stops and he says, he speaks of, he quotes from Genesis, right? A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And he says in verse 32, this mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Hmm. So marriage, the original marriage covenant, he's saying speaks to Christ and the church. It's right. about the gospel message, God's rescue of his people. And so uh, even as we see the adultery of of God's people and of, our, of ourselves, right? That we've done that. We can remember we have a, a faithful bridegroom who is waiting for us mm-hmm. and who wants to redeem us and we'll be united on that final day. Yeah, amen. So I think that's a, that's a really important picture to talk about. Ezekiel 18, the whole, this idea of the soul that sins will die, very important because again, it lays on us this burden and responsibility for our own sins that we have to pay the price for our sins. Yeah. But there is one person that that's not true of. There's one person who didn't sin and yet still died. Right. Yeah, the one that was hoped for by Ezekiel even. Yeah. yeah. Well. So someone who's, you know, the one who would pick up the turban and the crown, mm-hmm. who would become both king and, and priest. Um, 
he's he's the one who actually didn't deserve that judgment but took it so that we would be delivered from it yeah so we can't create a new heart we can't create a new spirit in ourselves we'd have to depend upon the work of christ to do that for us mm-hmm. we look to him and then um we didn't talk about oh, we, we skipped yeah, we the skipped cup. the cup of wrath yeah. oh man we skipped the cup of wrath in ezekiel 23 the, yeah. the, the cup that's that's flowing anyway there's a mention, and you can go back and look at it in your own time. Chapter 23, verses 30 and following, the cup of wrath that God says that they have to drink, yeah. right? The nations have to drink. And we see this focus on this idea of the cup of wrath, that uh, there's this cup when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane that he wants to pass from him. Right. He doesn't want to drink it. And so there's this repeated theme in the prophets of the cup of God's wrath and having to drink that. And Jesus is the one who didn't want to drink the cup but drinks it for us, right? Takes the wrath of God in order that we don't have to. Yeah. So. Amen for that. Well, that's all we got for this week. Um, we'll see you next time for our last episode of Ezekiel. Thanks for joining us for Daily Gospel.